Let me invite us now to give ear to our second reading, which comes from the first chapter of Luke's gospel. Listen to this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Well, this Christmas story gets started by an angel, a holy messenger that brings a word from beyond us, a word from the heart of God. Because it is a word from God and not our own word, it can be a bit unsettling, it can be joyous, it can be confusing, or all of these. The messenger said to Mary that she is favored, graced, chosen. God is with you, the angel promises. Knowing that God has chosen you can also be unsettling. It can be joyful. It can be confusing. Why would God choose us? The holy messenger says, Mary, you will have a son. I know your families have arranged for you to marry Joseph. I know that has not occurred yet. I know it is common practice that marriage comes first but the child that you will give birth to is a child of God, and apparently God can't wait any longer. It's a risky word. There would be absolutely zero social tolerance for a child born before marriage in those days. The social consequences of this heavenly uh, announcement is enough to scare Mary to death. 
Because angels bring such surprising and sometimes troubling words, they are continually reminding us, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And maybe Gabriel's just on autopilot with this, but Mary's reaction is not so much fear as it is confusion. She says, I'm sorry. Can we go over that first part again? The part about me having a child? You are aware I am a virgin, right? You, I assume angels are in on this information. You can, can you tell me exactly how this is going to happen? It is not uncommon in our house that my bride, Carol, will bring some dish to the table and it is delicious. And the conversation that follows is something like this. Darling, how did, how did you season this? This is excellent. She said, oh, I don't remember. I just threw some of this and some of that in, in, in there. I said, well, what, what did you, well, maybe a little garlic, some of that chili lime from Trader Joe's. I said, well, how much of the chili lime did you put? She said, I don't know. I just put it in. I didn't write it down, she says. So I said, if I ask you to do it exactly like this again, she says, never going to happen. <laughs> Enjoy it while it lasts. And I do, and I'm, I'm grateful, but sometimes it would be nice to have a recipe to know exactly how it comes together. Mary begins by asking for a recipe. Can you go over that first part again? How exactly is it I'm going to have a son? Mary's not the only person to have asked this question. More than a few through the years have had a question or two about how this virgin birth stuff works. When I was in seminary, I had a theology professor, Dr. John Leith. He was kind of crusty, gruff, was committed to precision. A classmate asked him once, Dr. Leith, do you believe in the virgin birth? He said, well, I don't believe there are as many as people claim there are. More than a few through the ages have asked Mary's question, how exactly does this work? So, you're here today, and if you think I'm going to explain it, you're going to be terribly disappointed. Mary says, can you go over that first part again? And Gabriel doesn't really answer, but he does respond. And to, res to understand his response, it's helpful to remember the creation story. The very first words of Scripture, it says there was chaos. And the Spirit of God overshadowed, hovered over, came over the chaos, and there was life. There was creation. When Luke tells this, he uses the exact same language. The Spirit of God hovers over, overshadows, and there is new creation. And maybe Mary raised her eyebrows at that point and said, I don't completely follow. And Gabriel says, look, I don't really know. I just know that with God, all things are possible. And what I do know is that you are graced. God has chosen you 
God wishes to do this work with you because you belong to God. And then it changes. And she no longer needs the answer to her question. She then responds, I'm in. I'm all in. Let it be with me according to your word. I want to be who God wants me to be. Mary begins by asking questions so that someday she might explain Christmas. But Christmas doesn't work that way. The truth of this birth is not something we explain, it is something that claims us. Author and theologian David Ford has said these words, they don't convince us, they change us. He writes, this truth cannot be adequately taken in unless we begin to be transformed. It has the urgency of the most relevant news, like someone shouting fire or whispering, will you marry me? If I understand the text, this is what happens to Mary. She begins with questions of logistics, but as she realizes that the love of God will be born in the world, she is less concerned how it happens and more transformed because it happens. And once she trusts that she is indeed graced by God, logistics becomes secondary. Let it be with me according to your word, she says, that will be enough. During COVID, my dad suffered a stroke and was dying. My son and I, we jumped in the car and we drove from Kansas City to Atlanta that I might say goodbye to him and that Nathan might say goodbye to his grandfather. And for, for a, a while, about an hour, I sat in his living room with those fold-out you know, beds where he was doing his dying, and, and we remembered. And, and he remembered what he called the awe-dad years. He called them that because evidently that's all I said to him for a number of years, just awe-dad. You see, I was in my early teens, and, un and unfortunately, I was the son of the world's most embarrassing father. At my age now, I have been on both sides of this equation, and I've learned that being the world's most embarrassing father can be quite fun. But when you're the child of the world's most embarrassing father, it is torture. This is the period of time when dads take a nosedive in intelligence. They go from being almost omniscient to knowing, well, nothing. When my son was going through this period of time, my brother said to my son, oh, Nathan, Tom has always been this dumb. You're just now recognizing it. <laughs> The odd dad years are so named because it's how I addressed him. He would say something and my response is, oh, dad. He would do something, oh, dad. He couldn't help it. He was just limited. He, he would pick me up from school and get this. He would get out of the car and wave. Oh, dad, I, I, got, I got people here. What are you getting out of the car for? And... One time, Danny Martin and Frank Chamless and I were playing basketball in the driveway, and my dad decided he would join us. 
This is a man whose athletic abilities is stretched with checkers, all right? And so he comes walking out, he's wearing a t-shirt, and I don't mean one that's got Chicago Bulls plastered on it, I mean a Fruit of the Loom V-neck white t-shirt. He's wearing Bermuda shorts that should never have been allowed out of Bermuda, and his legs. His legs looked like they had not seen sun or bright light for a decade. He looked like he was walking on fluorescent light tubes, and these legs descended into wingtips. And he said to me, you guys want to play some hoops? My friends looked at him, they looked at me, Oh, Dad. Of course, times changed. I entered college, and he improved dramatically. And then he remembered the phone call from March of 1987. I had taken the overnight train from Charleston, South Carolina to Richmond, Virginia. My girlfriend at the time was in school in Richmond. It was her birthday. I was surprising her for her birthday. Didn't dawn on me until after I'd gotten on the train that she might have made plans for her birthday. But I had a ring in my pocket. And I had made reservations at a restaurant called the Tobacco Company, which was an old repurposed warehouse that served entrees that were way more than an associate pastor could afford. The reservations were for 7.30 that night, but the train arrived about five in the morning. I called her on a payphone. You remember those, a payphone? I, I put my dime in 1987, and I called her. I convinced her to go to breakfast. We, she, I had an omelet, she had a pancake and an egg over easy, and after we had breakfast, I realized there's no way I'm lasting until 7.30 tonight to propose. So as we walked down this main drag in Richmond, morning traffic whizzing by, I proposed. And she laughed, which was not exactly the response I was imagining. Her realizing that, seeing my face, she said, oh, yes, yes, I say yes. It was then we decided we should call our parents. I called my dad. I said, dad, do you remember Carol Wells? He said, yes, she is wonderful. I said, yes, I agree. I said, Dad, I asked her to marry me today. He said this, just come on home. <laughs> I said, what? He said, just come on home, Tom. I said, what do you mean? He said, you shouldn't be by yourself at a time like this. <laughs> just come on home. I said, Dad, she said yes. She did. Wonderful. But she's so smart. As he lay in that hospital bed in his condo, I thanked him for that. I told him he didn't have to be quite so surprised that she said yes, but I also told him that I knew at that point he knew me better than anybody in the world. And he knew some reasons she might say no. And yet what he said was, you're at home with me. You'll always be at home with me. And in the ways of fathers and sons, we don't always know how that works out, but it doesn't really matter. Just that it works out is all that matters. 
I suppose that's what happens with Mary. I think Mary had to have experienced something like that. The angel says, you're going to be a mom because God has chosen you. And that is because you belong to God. You are always going to be at home. And that love alive in you is a love the world needs. And Mary said, I'm all in. Neither Mary nor we can fully explain how God's love breathes in this world. More importantly, we can't explain why God chooses with everything else that God could do, why God chooses to be with us. But our testimony is God has made that choice in this child that is born of woman as is every child yet born of God's power as was no other child. I don't understand all, how all of this occurred, but I don't need to. There was a time, maybe I was curious, but not anymore. I don't need to. Now I know what is life-changing is that God chooses to come to us. Evidently, God can't bear to stay away. And the only possible reason for that is love. A love that says to you, you are favored, you are chosen, you are loved. God says, you will always belong to me because I am your home. So just come on home. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.